sitting, literally. Um, we've come to the end of our weekend, but we've come to one of, uh, I think, a, a very beneficial part, a very helpful part, interesting part, the question and answers. Um, as per normal, we've been inundated with a plethora of questions about five minutes ago, so I've tried my best to search through them and separate them into questions to do with First John, um, questions to do with other biblical passages, and then some uh, general questions about, uh, I suppose, living the Christian life. So, not every question will get answered. I apologize for that. It's just not going to be possible. Um, but we will try to get through as many as possible. So, we'll see how we go. Are you ready for this, Don? We'll find out. <laughs> so, Don, um, quite a few questions here um, on something that you didn't have time to hit on just in the last talk. What is the sin that leads to death? First John five sixteen seventeen. Christian interpreters are divided into roughly two camps. There are a lot of subdivisions, but roughly two camps. Some think that this is a sin unto physical death. Um, after all, in the New Testament, you have the sin of Ananias and Sapphira, for example, which led to their physical death. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, some people approach the Lord's Supper in such a bad way that um, we're told that, as a, in consequence, some of them have fallen ill and some have actually died. Um, so they think that this sin unto death is, is, um, is, is a sin that prompts God to actually kill them. And if that is God's resolution, then at some point you shouldn't pray for them. On the other hand, um, there is no hint of that sort of thing in First John. It sounds to me, if it's going to be kept in line with the rest of the book, it sounds to me more likely with the kind of sin that was displayed by the people in chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, who went out from us in order that it might be made clear that they never were of us. Um, you have to remember that there are some kinds of apostasy where God eventually draws a line in the sand and says, uh, stop praying for them. They've, they've, they've gone too far. That's the way it is with Samuel, for example, and Saul. Stop praying for Saul. I have rejected him. It's, it's done. Now, um, that means, of course, that um, the Christian leaders, in this case, John, has some insight into the person who is not simply fallen into some sort of backsliding, but into some real apostasy. Um, don't forget that apostasy, if we've understood chapter 2 aright, is not losing your salvation, but now being removed from the place where you used to stand. That's what apostasis means. Stasis has to do with standing somewhere. Apostasis means you're now removing yourself from that place. You've changed your mind. You're in another place. But phenomenologically, these people were really Christians. Now they've removed themselves from that place and they're in another place where they've rejected the gospel in some uh, principial, deep-seated, absolutist fashion and rejected what they formerly espoused. Um, and, and where that takes place, it's, it's called today apostasy. Um, and, and if a person is judged to have taken that sort of irremediable step, irremediable step, then, then it's not a case of temporary backsliding or immaturity or something like that, but they are now beyond the pale. And where that is discerned to be the case, 
John says, no point praying for them in that case. It's impossible for them to be restored. They've gone too far. And certainly there are lots of passages in the New Testament that speak of, of that kind of um, no going back sort of, uh, of, 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 of sin. I suspect that's the case. The argument against it is that um, uh, the word life is, is used in John's gospel always for uh, eternal life. You should pray and God will give them eternal life. If a brother does not lead, commits a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them zoe, which is always used of eternal life. Well, if they're already brothers, surely they already have eternal life. And so the argument against the second view is that they already have eternal life, so, so how can that be right? It's got to be physical death rather than, 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 than something else. And what I would say is the argument is still at the level of the phenomenological. It, it's still at the level of the, of the, of the, uh, uh, the, the way things appear. Just as in chapter 2, those who are being rejected appear to be Christians, but then show by their departure that they really aren't after all. So these people appear to be heading for death, but uh, in fact God gives them life. It, it, the language, in other words, I think is, is not ontological, but phenomenological. Um, in light of the excursus on 1 John 5 and 9, the three witnesses, um, how would you teach and preach this to a congregation? Um, I'm assuming that this would possibly be a church that holds to the King James Bible and... <laughs> Is there any good books on that, you know, uh, that you would recommend? Well, most of the churches I preach in nowadays don't use the King James Version as their primary Bibles. And so probably if I were preaching on it in such churches using, I'm using the 2011 NIV, but if you're using that or the ESV or something, I would just preach it, assuming the footnote's not even there. And then there might be two people, five people in the congregation afterwards who are wonder about the footnote and want some further explanation. And so, so you give them a further explanation. But that doesn't mean you have to give the full-blown full uh, explanation to the whole congregation, which is probably just a bit too much in an average church. On the other hand, if you do have a church that uh, is using the authorized version, um, then you really do have to say something. Um, a lot depends on whether you have occasionally already prepared the ground by talking once in a while about text criticism. Let's say the long section of the, 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 the John 8, um, the, the woman caught in adultery, where most Bibles signal that this was not originally part of the original manuscript, so the long ending of Mark or something. Even King James Version Bibles nowadays, most of them uh, are flagged in some, in some ways. And um, so if you've already explained these sorts of things at other times in your regular expository ministry, then you, you just allude to those explanations and keep right on going. Um, if, on the other hand, you've never said anything to the congregation and, and you've, you've engendered the, uh, the appearance that the King James Version has always got it exactly right, text critically, then sooner or later you need to let people know um, the truth, and th that means with a certain diplomacy and skill and tact and so on. It's really, it's really important to see that all sophisticated statements on inerrancy talk about what's in the original autographs. It doesn't guarantee that all the copies were perfect. Uh, can we have complete assurance, uh, no fear of punishment at all, the side of glory, that is, before we are perfectly loving uh, 1 John 4, 18. If you are perfectly without sin, absolutely. 
moving on. <laughs> um, I mean, it's easy to take that, uh, to, to, give, to give examples, you see. I mean, when, when my kids, my kids are 28 and 30, 31 now, uh, so, so they're not under my roof and, and so on. But when they were, let's say, 18 and still under my roof, um, and um, uh, they wanted to borrow the car, and I said, get the car home by a certain time and so on, they knew they'd f be in trouble if they got the car home half an hour late. Uh, in other words, there was a certain kind of fear of dad. But that doesn't mean I hope that it was a cringing fear. I, I think that they still understood that at some deep level I, I love them with um, an unalterable love that was genuinely unconditional. But there still can be some fear of punishment, like being grounded for a month or whatever. Um, and, 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 and so it is with, with, with God. I mean, uh, we're, we're told explicitly in Hebrews chapter 12 that um, God is, is, is a wise parent. He, he chastens everyone who, who is in his family. I mean, he, he, he realizes that we are sinners yet, and he knows that it's for our good. Um, so so he, he himself wields the rod. Um, and, and, and that surely is a good thing. I have a friend at Trinity. Um, He's 71 or 72 now, and his wife's sinking into Alzheimer's or something similar. And they had two daughters of their own who are now in their late 30s or mid-40s. But they also reared, uh, um, for part or whole of their lives, 30 other kids. They were, they were foster parents who, who had foster children in from anywhere for, for, for anywhere from six weeks to many, many, many years. So he had a lot of experience, you know, <laughs> rearing children. And at one point, when Tracy, his older daughter, who's now in her mid-40s, was about um, oh, 18 or thereabouts. She was one of our babysitters way back then. And um, uh, he turned to her and he said, um, Tracy, are you afraid of me? He said, oh, Dad, give me a break. Who would be afraid of a teddy bear like you? You know, I know that you love me. No, 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 no. Don't shoot off your mouth before you engage your brain. Is there some sense at all in which you are afraid of me? Yeah, well, yeah. If I'm doing something I really shouldn't, I'm, I'm afraid of you. Is that a good thing? <laughs> yeah, I suppose it is. Then go and meditate on the fear of the Lord. That's one shrewd dad. Do you, do you, do you, do you, do you know? Um... So, if you're sinlessly perfect, don't need to worry about fear of punishment. Until then. <laughs> 1 John 3.21 uh, Because it says, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Does this mean we have uh, kind of a self-determination within our hearts? Uh, can we tell what our standing is before God by looking into our hearts? Yes, I mean, that's still at the phenomenological level. That is, if, if you're, you're not feeling self-condemned because you're not aware of any particular sin, it doesn't mean that you're sinlessly perfect, but, but nevertheless, if you are sinning and you know that you're sinning and you know you're disobedient, then your hearts are condemning you. And if your hearts are condemning you, then you don't have confidence before God when you pray. That's, that's the context. Now, elsewhere, of course, both Paul and John make it very clear that what we think about ourselves is not nearly as important as what God thinks about ourselves. Um, what God thinks of us. I mean, it's possible for someone w to have such a hardened conscience that they really are unaware of their own sin. So in that sense, they might have hearts that don't condemn themselves because they've, they've become hardened to their own sin. But then you have to keep remembering that it's not what you think or even what your heart thinks. It's ultimately what God thinks. 
So likewise, with that woman that I mentioned who was the pastor's wife, she had a heart that was condemning her all the time for wrong reasons. She needed to get reorientated to what was really right and an accurate assessment in her life. So it's not suggesting that our hearts, our minds, our consciences are perfect. Um, our consciences can make all kinds of really bad mistakes. They can become hardened or they can become legalistic and, and, and feeling guilty when they shouldn't be too. But, but nevertheless, they are some kind of guide. And as long as your heart is condemning you, then it's, it's hard to approach God with confidence in prayer. That's, that's the point of the immediate context. Some questions on uh, definite, definite atonement. Is definite atonement compatible with 1 John 2, verse 2? And then a loaded question, are there any good books on this doctrine, either in print or soon to be released, that you would recommend? Well, the soon-to-be-released in this country has already been released in the U.S. It's by Cro published by Crossway, and the Gibson brothers have, uh, have uh, edited it. You all know about it? Yes? Does everybody here know about it or not? Probably not. But Why don't you make the big splash? Okay, so Johnny Gibson, who uh, was instrumental in why this uh, conference exists, him and his brother have co-edited a, a tomb, a brave, comprehensive work on a particular or definite atonement. It's been a lengthy project, I think six years in the making, and it's just been released, and it's really it's the book to read, or will be the book to read on the subject. And the so title is? The title is From Heaven He Came and Sought Her, and then there's a subtitle, which I don't remember. And that's a, that's a, a line taken from the hymn, The Church's One Foundation is Jesus Christ, Her Lord. You know, From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for, his, and for her life she, he died. Um, the, 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 the questions surrounding definite atonement and limited atonement, so-called, are really complex. Um, I much prefer definite atonement to limited atonement because who wants to sound as if you're going around limiting the atonement? But in fact, everybody limits the atonement in one sense. Um, if you think that Christ died potentially for everybody but actually saved nobody apart from their own choice and their own faith, you're limiting the atonement um, by uh, saying that it all depends on how it's received. If in fact you say that Christ died effectively only for the elect, then you've limited the atonement to the elect. The only people who don't limit the atonement in any sense are universalists who say that Jesus died for all and all will be finally saved. So I don't like the term limited. I think it's just too loaded. I think more accurate is definite atonement. Did Christ die in some sense for the elect? For them in a sense in which he did not die for others. And then you start, of course, with the biblical t texts. On the one hand, you find texts like John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave himself. And, or 1 John 2.2, you know, uh, not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. But then there are other texts, like, for example, Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, which sounds definite, targeted, bound up with election, and, 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 and so on. Um, and the question is how to put all of those sorts of passages together. Um, there are different ways of doing so. In my view, the best way is to say what most Christians in the Reformed heritage have acknowledged, uh, though some don't like the formulation. That is that the cross was sufficient for all 
but effective for the elect. It's not as if to have more people saved, Christ would have had to suffer five minutes longer or an extra two hours and 15 minutes or something of that order. That's just so mechanical, so so wretchedly um, mathematical that it's, 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 it's embarrassing. But if you really do hold that Christ's um, cross work is sufficient for all men and women everywhere without exception, then you are affirming what general atonement people already affirm. But you are affirming then something else as well. You are affirming that it was nevertheless in God's intent to be effective with the elect. And then you're handling both sets of verses. So that means that in 1 John 2, 2, those who take my way of putting them together say that Christ's propitiation is for the sins of the whole world in that context is a potential statement. That is, it's available to all. It's sufficient for all. And, and the reason why that's important in that context, I suggested briefly in the second address, was because the proto-Gnostics were saying that people are divided into various kinds. And if you belong to the animal kind, the sotkikoi kind, the people who are merely fleshly, then it's not even available for you. And over against that, John is saying, no, it's available for the whole world. Don't you see? But that means that in that context, the focus is not on the intent of God to apply the cross effectively to the elect, but rather it is talking in this more potential way. Now, there are a lot of Reformed people who don't like that explanation. And John Owen offers a different explanation that I could tell you if you, if you wanted to know, but I, I just don't find it very convincing. I think that that explanation is, is, the, is, is the most uh, obvious one. That is, what is almost universally recognized is that Christ's atonement is sufficient for all, but effective for the elect. And, and um, if that's the case, then I would argue that a, a passage like 1 John 2, 2 is part of the sufficient for all dynamic, uh, not focusing in this context on the effective for the elect. Oh, there's a salesman here. Salesman here. David wants to offer his testimony. A special order? A special... And, and in my view, it's one of the best books on definite atonement um, since John Owen's The Death of Death and the Death of Christ in the 17th century. It's a very good book. Um, so if you're interested in understanding the atonement, f both from an historical point of view and from a, a scriptural point of view, not to mention also in some ways from a philosophical and pastoral point of view, uh, that book covers a lot of the bases. And it's written at a level that serious readers can understand. Great. Uh, how do we approach Christian brothers and sisters who appear uh, to feel free to sin because of God's grace and mercy? Quite a few questions surrounding our approach to brothers and sisters. Well, a, lot, <coughs> a lot depends on what kind of relationship we have with them. I mean, if you're their pastor, then you have an obligation pastorally to confront them. <coughs> If you're a good friend, then surely as a friend you want to challenge them at some point too. But um, how you confront them, uh, with what attitude, really makes a lot of difference. Um, 
if you barely know them. They're just people that, whose paths you cross every once in a while. Then you might not be the best person to say anything. I mean, you go up to somebody and say, hey, I hear that you're doing such and such. That's naughty. You shouldn't really be doing that. If you're a Christian, smarten up. I mean, uh, that just comes across as so judgmental and without context that it's, it's not likely to be pastorally very effective. On the other hand, if you really do care for someone, and this person really is claiming to be a Christian and going through some of the motions of churchmanship and this sort of thing, whereas, whereas they're, oh, I don't know, choose your public sin, uh, shacked up with someone common law and really careless about uh, that whole dimension of life, uh, don't you want sooner or later to say, um, what, what does it mean to confess Jesus as Lord? If you confess Jesus as Lord, doesn't that mean you want to do what he says? Now, some people who are in that situation come from such a badly instructed background that they actually think that common law marriage is marriage. I think biblically it's not, for various reasons we could go into. Um, and, and so they need some better instruction on the matter. And if they really do see that the word of God leads in another direction, if they really are Christians and want to be under the lordship of Christ, they will order their lives in line with Scripture. But if, in fact, they do not order their lives in Scripture, they see what Scripture says, but they insist on going another way, then sooner or later, uh, you really do have to say, if you are determined to defy God Almighty according to his holy word, you are determined to go another way despite your clear understanding of what Scripture says. What evidence is there that you really are a Christian? Doesn't being a Christian mean, in part, to come under the Lordship of Jesus? So, yeah, I do think it's important to say those sorts of things. But you want to work up to it gently, not with self-righteousness, not with judgmentalism, not with antagonism. Ideally, in a context of mutual friendship, you're doing it when you're having a... You know, on a fishing trip or you're, you're going shopping together and having coffee at Starbucks or whatever. Do it in a context which is, which is non-confrontational where they believe that you're speaking to them out of love and concern and not out of um, condescending judgmentalism. But within that framework, yeah, you bet your life it's important to do that. Um, that's already suggested by the end of First John, isn't it? Not only by the, the concern we have to pray for others who are beginning to wander and pray that the Lord will keep them and bring them back and, and bring them to himself afresh. Um, not to care for them is not to love them. If you came to claim to love them only in their physical well-being, you know, if they had cancer, you'd go and visit them in the hospital or you'd bring them meals or whatever. But when you see them doing things that are spiritually hugely dangerous, you don't say a word because that's private. Then what you're really saying is that they don't mean much to you either. You don't, you don't love them enough. Um, the same thing is true in, in evangelism, too. Um, if you talk about missions to a lot of people today, and missions means digging wells in the Sahel or bringing food to typhoon victims or, or whatever, that's all mission. But you never actually talk about evangelizing and church planting. Then John Piper asks the question, um, how can you actually claim to love them? Christians, we, we, we put this in the foundation documents of the Gospel Coalition. You can see them on our website. Christians are determined to relieve all human suffering, both temporal and eternal. So if you're determined only to relieve temporal suffering, but not determined to relieve people from the potential suffering of hell itself, how can you actually claim to love them? If you really believe what Jesus himself says about hell, then part of loving people is going to be gospel proclamation. It's, it's part of it, do you see? By all means, bring in the food supplies and the fresh water for the typhoon victims, 
but, but that's got to be in the matrix of a larger concern that is concern for suffering both temporal and eternal, which brings about the necessity of proclaiming the gospel of God too. And the same is true, then, I would argue, likewise, when you see people who are making really, really bad judgments that are affecting their spiritual well-being and their vitality and may actually be threatening them with apostasy. Uh, when John describes Jesus as from the beginning, what is John saying about the relationship with Jesus, with, between Jesus and the beginning by the prop, preposition from? Uh, for example, we know, given all our considerations, that it doesn't mean he first came into existence in the beginning. So what does it mean? Something like, from whatever the beginning was, he was already there. The same is true with another expression in um, John 1. Uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So that doesn't mean in the beginning the Word came into being, but in the beginning, however far back the beginning is, the beginning in, in terms of the created order, whatever, however far back the beginning, the word already was. So in other words, it's a, it's a way of, of talking about the eternality of uh, God in time past, the eternality of the Son in time past, the eternality of the word in time past. Some questions here, um, moving on to more, I suppose, wider general questions. Um, there's a question here about the uh, Strange Fire Conference. What's your opinion on that? And is cessationism biblical? <laughs> well, Christians are divided on that one, as you well know. Um, does everybody know about the Strange Fire Con Conference? Oh, okay. <clears throat> um, recently, John MacArthur held a Strange Fire Conference. That's what, that's what they called it in L.A., which was really designed to affirm cessationism. That is, um, the belief that the so-called sign gifts, or sometimes called the charismatic gifts, uh, have all ceased. And so anybody who is claiming to speak in tongues or give prophecies today or miraculous words of knowledge or uh, healings or whatever, uh, this can't be of God because those things were all withdrawn at some point in the first century. So it's not really the fire of God that is descending, it's strange fire. Do you see? So, in other words, it was a conference defending cessationism. And there are many, many, many fine Reformed people who, who, who actually hold that, and non-Reformed people who actually hold um, that, that these so-called sign gifts have been withdrawn. Uh, Warfield wrote a, a book called Counterfeit Miracles um, at the end of the 19th century, uh, taking very much the same uh, perspective. So it's not an irresponsible pers perspective. I think myself it is exegetically mistaken. So in, in one of the books that Mark mentioned this, this morning, Showing the Spirit, I, I wrote it 25 years ago, but it's still in print. Um, it works through all of the passages in Acts that talk about the Spirit, and all of the passages, all of 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 that talk about the charismata, the, the, the charismatic gifts. And I argue that cessationism, that is the belief that they're all withdrawn, is not biblically defensible. Um, but on the other hand, I also think that treating any of these so-called sign gifts, whether tongues or prophecy or anything else, as the necessary mark of a superior spirituality or of a second blessing or anything of that order is also utterly without defense. Um, uh, 
which means I'm very worried by the kind of Christianity that says first you accept Jesus as Savior and then you accept him as Lord and then you get the Holy Spirit and you start speaking in tongues and that marks a a further stage of spiritual progress and so on. Um, There really is no biblically responsible exegetical defense of that position. So um, I find myself therefore nicely condemned by both sides in the debate. (laughs) But if you want to hear the biblical defense I would give against the stance of the theolo- of the Strange Fire Conference, then, and then read that book. Uh, last time you were here, Don, we heard some of your uh, rapping capabilities. Um, what do you think of the whole lyrical theological movement, and do you have a particular favorite artist that you like to chill out to and, and, and listen to? Well, um, I, I like to applaud the... Um, uh, evangelistic commitment of some of my African American friends who are putting things together in a mode which reaches others of their contemporaries. The most gifted of these is Shailin. Now, none of this is my favorite. I wouldn't go to one of those conferences if my life depended upon it. And, <laughs> and, 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 and yet at the same time, two conferences back of the Gospel Coalition, I'm the president after all, I decide these things. Uh, we had McCormick Place in uh, in Chicago with seven or 8,000 people there. And the conference ended at noon. In the afternoon, we, we, we ran a post-conference church planting seminar. In the evening, we gave it to Shai Lin and some of his friends and opened up the doors to anybody who wanted to come in. We had 4,000 in uh, from the south side of Chicago, about 95% African-American. And he preached the gospel, and, 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 and he's bold as brass in preaching the gospel. He's a very effective evangelist. And moreover, he submits all of his lyrics to Mark Dever or others and so on, so on, so on. So um, if you ask, is it my style of music? Is it my style of, of lyricism? No, it's not. And I don't think it's very good either in terms of corporate worship or the like, even within the African-American community. It's performance stuff. Uh, on the other hand, it's performance stuff that God has used to communicate to certain kinds of people in certain places. For a bunch of white dudes in Northern Ireland to take it on because it's esoteric is, in my view, somewhat silly. But <laughs> That's my future, future career dashed to pieces, actually. You can ask my wife. I do like, I do like some of that. Oh, you're welcome to like it. Just don't make it central in your corporate worship in your church. Absolutely. Um, question here, as a dating Christian couple uh, who go to different denominational churches, we were wondering before getting married, so a serious dating Christian couple here, before getting married, what things are important to agree on? (laughs) The truth. I think that's a second order question. The first order question is, uh, is their relationship serious enough that they're actually trying to resolve their differences by studying the word of God together, by reading books together? In other words, um, it's a second order question to see just to say what kind of diversity can we tolerate and still get married. I mean, that, that's setting out a standard first that you've got to get to. I, I would start the other end. That is... Um, uh, so you're an Arminian and I'm a Calvinist or you're a Charismatic and I'm a Cessationist or y- y- you're a Pado-Baptist and I'm a Baptist or, or whatever. Look, can, can we begin to study those questions together and resolve them under the authority of the Word of God and, and w- without reference yet to marriage or anything else? But, but is there a, 
a way forward so that you're trying to come to a common mind under the word of God. Because I would want to argue that Christians should be doing that in any case. In other words, if you have a good, close friend who belongs to another tradition, um, then surely part of a decent conversation should be to bring your differences to submission to the word of God. You might not resolve them, but you've surely got to try. That's that's part of, of, of pursuing uh, what Philippians, for example, holds up uh, uh, again and again, ten times as a, as, a, as, a, uh, as a goal for Christians, to think the same thing, which does not mean just agree to disagree. It means uh, actually to bring your thoughts under submission of Christ to, uh, to, to Christ so that you can try to get resolution as far as you can. But having said that, then I would say that if the differences are so deep that after you're married, you're going to go to different churches, that's not a smart marriage. If the differences are so deep that you're going to fight in some profound way over what you do with your children, then you're heading for all kinds of problems. Um, If one is absolutely adamant that they need to be baptized, the other would say christened, when they're babies, and the other side is absolutely adamant that baptism should wait until they profess faith themselves, how are you going to resolve that one? You should have some sort of common plan before you, before you commit to marriage, it seems to me. Um. Um, M.T. Wright, in what ways is he helpful and in what ways does he distort the biblical message? Oh, in 25 words or less. Um, <laughs> that is such a big one. Um, do you really want me to tackle that one here? Um, I, I could take the rest of our time and not even begin to scratch the surface on that one. I should say, first of all, that Tom and I have been friends since 1973, thereabouts. He started at Oxford the same year that I started. Um, he doing a DPhil, me doing a PhD at Cambridge. And we would meet up in Cambridge at Tyndale House every summer. And we, we did various things together. And uh, um, eventually he went to, 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 to lecture at McGill University in, in Montreal, which was my old alma mater. I studied chemistry and mathematics there. He went and taught theology there. And we've, we've tracked each other over the year, and we still regularly bump into each other at, at professional conferences, and occasionally actually end up speaking at the same conference, one about five years ago, for example, in Edinburgh. So it's, what I say about him is not out of uh, uh, alien knowledge. I'm talking behind somebody's back. I don't know him. We've talked face-to-face and had extended discussions on many, many issues over the years. Um, he is one of the best debaters I've ever seen. He's a formidably good debater. Moreover, he cannot write a boring line. He's a very good writer. Um, and a lot of what he has said and done has been really terrific. Um, his book on the resurrection of Christ, all 800 pages of it, the resurrection of the Son of God, apart from one emphasis in it that I really don't like, is in fact one of the two best books on the resurrection in the last century. That's, that's saying something. Um, the other's by Michael Lacona. And um, uh, moreover, some of his handling of the really, really radical Jesus critics, uh, Marcus Borg and, and, and people like that, uh, it's been deft, it's been uh, bold, it's been courageous. There are all kinds of things that I, I really like in, in what he has said and done. I think that he badly misunderstands the nature of justification. 
He's got a little better in recent years, partly because um, uh, a number of us have hammered him again and again and again. So he's kept revising what he says about justification. Uh, when you ask what does Tom Wright think, you've got to ask Tom Wright in 1975, Tom Wright in 1985, Tom Wright in 1995, or Tom Wright in 2013. Because on some on some crucial points, each of those pegs is is a wee bit different, and and uh, so the issue becomes pretty complicated. A lot of what he has done, he claims is a kind of biblical theology that reads the storyline of the Bible aright. If you get the storyline aright, then you understand the parables aright, you understand Jesus aright, you understand Paul aright. And the problem with evangelicals, he says, especially the reform types, um, is they don't really understand how the Bible storyline is put together. And so a lot of what he's doing is for biblical theology, which I'm also for. I just don't think he's got the storyline right. Let me give you an example. I've heard him do this in person again and again and again. This is the Bible. This is a summary of 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 a of a twenty minute introduction to a sermon that I heard him give with my own ears three or four years ago. And um, uh, uh, I'll give it to you in about three minutes. Um, in the beginning, God made everything, and He made everything good. But with sin, there came disaffection and disruption and destruction between human beings and in the whole created order and alienation from God and uh, yet God in his mercy eventually um, called forth Abraham in due course he, 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 he raised up a Moses to, to give the law but again and again and again Israel failed eventually under the monarchy went into exile first the northern tribes and the southern tribes but then in the fullness of time God sent his son and in the coming of his son, um, he arrives with the dawning of the kingdom long promised. And in this dawning of the kingdom, um, what Jesus does on the cross is um, uh, reverses death, as it were, and, and um, uh, it captures people, calling them into his kingdom, now not Jews only, but Gentiles and Jews alike. Um, to, to work with him under the kingdom to restore the justice and integrity and godliness that was first created in anticipation of the time when, when Christ finally makes all things new in a new heaven and a new earth. Now, how am I doing? Is that accurate? Well, I'd say that it's got an awful lot of good in it. But two things stand out, a minor thing and a bigger thing. First, his eschatological fulfillment now under King Jesus turns out to be very, very political. So, so that he, 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 the, the outworking of the dawning of the kingdom now is, is structured very heavily in terms of a, a, a modern political perspective that I'm not sure is very well grounded in scripture. I don't, don't think he's got that right. That's the minor point. The major point is, He's managed to get through the entire storyline without talking about the wrath of God. We're not just alienated from God. He's flaming angry against us. 600 times the Old Testament speaks of the wrath of God. So as a result, because he's left that bit out, when he comes to the cross, the cross is not propitiating God. It's not 
turning aside the wrath of he doesn't see that our biggest problem is not socially destroying one another and socially destroying the world we live in our biggest problem is being reconciled to God that affects ultimately his doctrine of justification his eschatology and everything else now initially in the sort of 1985 to 2003 sort of period uh, he, he just didn't say anything about the wrath of God he, he, he just ignored it now because we, he's been hammered on that one again and again and again now he puts it in but he tends to put it in in a footnote somewhere or other, three or four pages reserved for it, acknowledges that this is part of it, and part of what the cross achieves is to put aside the wrath of God. He acknowledges that it's there, and then gets on with talking about his synthesis as if it's not there. And then you say, yeah, but, 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 but Tom, what place do you have for alienation from God that, that, that attracts his just judgment, his, his holy wrath, which is, is resolved finally by the cross, which he himself has, has designed to restore us to a right status with him. Oh, I've got that there. It's right on page 247, footnote 3. See, I've got it there. Don't, don't pick on me for that. But what I would say is he's such a clever debater that he puts it in somewhere, acknowledges it, but it's nowhere near the center of, of his thinking, um, so that sometimes what's wrong with Tom, in my view, is, is now, in the final stages of his synthesis, is, is not that he's left some stuff out entirely, but that his balance of things is so distorted that, that, um, that, that he's nowhere near the center. But you can't say that it's not there. It's, it's, it, 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 he's, ten, he's tended to make peripheral things central and central things peripheral. Um, on, on a whole array of fundamental issues so that I think it distorts his exegesis of the, uh, the, 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 the parables and his, his exegesis of Paul and justification and a number of other kinds of things. Um, at the same time, I would be the first to insist that he has done some things very well. There's another element that I... I, I, I you hate to mention it, but it, it, it's a part of it. There's some, there's some teachers who teach in such a way as to say, in effect... Everybody's got it wrong until I got here, and now I've got it right. Now, they would never be quite so crass as to put it that way, but Tom is doing that implicitly in his argumentation all the time. So he's constantly saying things like, too many Christians actually believe that you know, heaven is airy-fairy and white nightgowns and fluffy clouds in the sky and it's all spiritual existence, but actually what we're heading for is resurrection existence, a new heaven and a new earth, and so on, so on, so on. And, 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 and we've got this one wrong. Evangelicalism has got this one wrong. We need to get this one right, and I'm telling you what the truth is. But I don't know any serious evangelical Bible teacher who doesn't believe the way Tom believes on that matter. I, I mean, I'm sure there are some out there, but I don't know them. You, you, you know, so he's erected a straw man in order to push his view, and 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 then all of his all of his followers then start acting and speaking the same way as if evangelicalism has got it wrong until they come along with their insights and get it all right. And you want to say, what planet are you on? You, 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 don't don't you read anything? I mean, uh, Christians have been saying this from 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 the year dot. I mean, the resurrection has been a central plank for all Christians and. And, and, and so on. I'm sure that there are some popular uh, mystical ethereal types who, who want to have just a, a heaven and white nightgowns and so on, but, but I, I don't know any serious Christians who, who, who argue along those lines. So he's erected a straw man to knock it down to puff the importance of his own work. And he's, he's done that on doctrine after doctrine. I would want to argue that serious Christian confessionalism not only seeks to be grounded in Holy Scripture, but also wants to acknowledge its anchoring in the whole history of the church. 
This is not something that was invented in the 20th century or the 21st century. Um, th th this is part of Christian confessionalism across the ages. And you want to link into that and demonstrate that uh, and, not, and avoid giving the impression that everybody's got it wrong until you came along and, and, and told everybody what to believe. Um, have I said it? I've probably yeah. said too much. Just get Tom's still a friend. Mind. but um, You still consider him a Christian brawler? Uh, well, it's not my job to consign him to the pit in any case, but, but, but yes, I certainly consider him a Christian brother. But that doesn't mean that I think that all Christian brothers have things quite right either. You don't want to start saying, because he's a Christian brother, therefore we don't dare criticize. You still want to bring everything to the test of Scripture. We'll just uh, finish up with this question, I think. Uh, what are the advantages and disadvantages of being a single uh, pastor? <laughs> well let's begin with the advantages um, you can put in a lot more hours without having to worry about um, making sure you're not robbing your spouse of and children of time that they really need and deserve um, when I was in pastoral ministry in Vancouver, I regularly put in 90-hour weeks. Regularly did. And, and who cared? You know, I had the energy to do it, and, and, uh, and I did it. And uh, on a slow week, I'd, I'd slow it down to 75 or 80 hours. So you, you can be more productive. And, um, and, and then you remember what Paul says, you know, in, in a passage like 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, those who are married are rightly concerned about other things, how they can please their wife, and then you've probably got a mortgage, and, and you know, the children come along, and there are other sets of obligations and so on. Um, and, 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 and Whereas if you really are uh, thoroughly committed to uh, the Lord's work in a particular place, you can devote all of your energy and creative thought and priority use of your time and finances and everything else to, 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 to that particular work. Yeah, there are, there are some advantages. Um, moreover in those days it's less so today but in those days more women stayed at home and more men worked during the day and were at home at night if you wanted to get hold of men then you had to visit in the evening so most evenings I was out visiting because that's when I got the men I, I, didn't, want, I didn't want to just be visiting women I wanted to be visiting the men uh, many many churches in uh, the Western world have more women in them than, than men. And it's partly because we've, in the past, we've catered to women a great deal. We've had uh, women's Bible studies and uh, women's missionary groups and, and uh, we've had all sorts of groups for children and young people and, and in-betweeners and all, all the rest. We just, and then what do we had for men? A monthly deacons meeting. Um, so I was determined in that ministry to reverse that and start putting in man hours into going after men. And after about two years, we were seeing more men converted than women converted. But it was, it was, it was partly because I could put in the evenings and, and bring other men along with me and, and start changing priorities and direction, you see? So uh, there, are, there are potential advantages. But I know a brother. Some of you would know him, so I won't mention his name. I know a brother. He's about the same age as I am. He's been single all of his life. Very fruitful man. Very fruitful ministry. Um lives somewhere in the UK and when I'd run into him from time to time across the years 
you know, we would razz each other back and forth on this one, you know. Still living a second-class life, are you, Don? You know, and, and, and he, he, he's just pulling my chain, you know. He, does, he, he doesn't really believe that people have different gifts and callings. But, but at the same time, I started noticing that not infrequently when I ran across him, he had a spectacular tan. And I discovered he had just come back from vacationing in Bermuda or wherever he was most recently. He, he seemed to have more than his share of vacations. And when he did have a vacation, he wasn't worried about bringing the whole family, which would have been prodigiously expensive. He had the money and the resources to go and upgrade his tan in Bermuda. So I started saying, you know, when Paul speaks of being free from the concerns of family and all of that sort of thing, it means he's putting an extra time. Are you just putting an extra time looking after your suntan, brother? And so I would razz him back and forth that way. You, 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 you see. Um, okay, that's all superficial. There are some disadvantages in being um, single in ministry. Lots of them. Uh, loneliness. Um, the loneliest time for me when I was single in ministry was Sunday night. Um, I'd put in ferocious hours over the weekend. Uh, most Sundays I was speaking five times in, in our growing church. Um, the last person left, I left, shut out the lights, and went home alone. And then you're emotionally worn out already from all the ministry. And then you can indulge, if you're not careful, in a pity party. That's not godly. So partly it's a question of figuring out how to uh, make sure you have friends that you can trust and other activities to do to recharge your batteries and this sort of thing. Moreover, a single guy is not really well positioned to do marriage counseling. Now maybe if you're a Catholic priest you can get away with it. But most often in our churches, um, that's, that's not a great situation to be in. Um, how about counseling the 20s, 30s, something on dating? And then, moreover, the church wanted to know what my philosophy would be as to whether or not I would date. That can raise all kinds of interesting questions in a church, too. I said, let me tell you my philosophy. Number one, I won't do it. Number two, if I do do it uh, and date a girl in the church, I'll marry her. Number three, if I date a girl in the church and don't marry her, then I'll never date anyone else in the church. And that one's absolute. I mean, you have to have some barriers in place. Or if you become the dating pastor, boy, you are in trouble. <laughs> so so um, in the mercy of God, eventually that was resolved. Uh, but it was resolved when I was pursuing doctoral studies when I, when I met someone in England and I was not pastoring a church. Um, so th 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 there are problems along those lines. I mean, moreover, there is a sense in which single life can be intrinsically more selfish. You're doing what you want to do. Even if it's Christian ministry, you're doing what you want to do. A good marriage is an intrinsically less selfish way to live because you really are supposed to be thinking about the spouse's well-being and seeking the spouse's good and then the children. And you, 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 you will be more concerned now with plumbing and um, paying the bills and 
education of the kids and church Christian discipline in the home and family devotions and use of your time and and, and, and so on. All of that demands a less selfish way of living. Now, I'm sure if your name is John Stott, you can live a single life in a very non-selfish way. But most single ministers that I have met have not achieved John Stott's standards in this regard. And so they patted themselves on the back for being thoroughly committed to Christ in a way in which married people have to share the time commitments and so on with, with other others. But on the other hand, they, they, they may in fact, deep down, be a little more selfish in terms of how they view time and energy and, and the frustrations of rubbing up against other people. I think a good marriage works away at chipping off the chips on your shoulder, uh, at, at chipping off the uh, awkwardnesses. So those of you who have been married even three or four years, y you, you know that you become another person within your, 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 your marriage. Um, unless your spouse is a complete pushover and you're a bully in, in, in point of fact then, then in, your, in your marriage you become a gentler more thoughtful person and so I, I would argue that for most people marriage is um, it, it actually may be part of equipping you to be a better minister too a little less selfish and so, so these dynamics are, are, are a, bit, a bit strange Moreover, a marriage is also supposed to be a mini picture of the union between Christ and the church. And if it's a picture of the union between Christ and the church, then, then, then that is part of Christian witness. Do you see there, there are ways in which you can play on that in the, in the local church um, uh, in all kinds of um, pastorally advantageous ways that I, I don't really have time to, to unpack. D does that begin to to scratch where you're itching. Um, it, I'll, I'll end with this. It's worth reflecting on the fact that in 1 Corinthians 7, marriage and celibacy both are called charismata. That is, marriage is a charismatic gift. And celibacy is a charismatic gift. It's a charisma. That is a gracious gift from God. A grace of his charis, his grace. Now, in this case, you can't have both charismatic gifts at the same time. Those of you who have the charismatic gift of singleness very often pant after the charismatic gift of marriage. But for what it's worth, many is the person who has the charismatic gift of marriage who pants on occasion after the charismatic gift of singleness. In other words, if you make all of your happiness revolve around having the other gift, <laughs> you'll be a miserable person all your life. And so where, wherever you are in your, in your marriage celibacy state, uh, it really is important not to tie your entire well-being to... Uh, a future that may or may not come. You have to be uh, learning something of Christian contentment where you are and trust yourself to the grace of God. Uh, uh, otherwise, you will be one of these people who is always looking over at the green grass on the other side of the fence and never ever content to nibble the grass where you are. Um, that's not easy, but I think that it is a part of, of, of what the Puritans used to call the rare jewel of Christian contentment. It really does trust something of the goodness and providence of God.
Thank you, Don. Um, a lot of a lot of diverse ground was was covered. We've come to the the end, folks. Um, the final final few hours of the Castle weekend. Want to make a few announcements and then some uh, important words of thanks have to be said. 